Turn with me to Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50, we'll be reading verses 22 through 26. And considering salvation by hope alone. Genesis chapter 50, verses 22 through 26. Give attention to God's holy word. So Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household. Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you. You shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are before you as your servants, and we say unto you, O Lord, speak for your servants here. We ask you that during this hour of preaching, you would pour out your Holy Spirit, that we might see your glory and hear your voice speaking to us the good things of our salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this all for his sake. Amen. Well, I don't know if you have ever towed anything with a truck, perhaps a trailer or a vehicle, but those of you that have, or perhaps those of you that have seen things towed, will know that you cannot simply attach your trailer to your truck with a chain. You can't only use a chain to tow a trailer. Now, we chuckle about this, and we understand why that is, because a chain only exerts force in one direction. All it can do is pull, but if you hit the brakes, the car's going to keep coming, because there's no opposite force to keep it where it needs to be. We hitch trailers to the hitch on our trucks, or we attach a car to our truck that we're towing it with, with something that is rigid something that exerts force in both directions. And when the force is exerted in both directions, you safely arrive at your destination. Well, the Christian life is very similar to being towed. It's very similar to towing a vehicle behind your truck. Obviously, the Lord Jesus is the one towing us, and we are the broken-down wreck that he is bringing to heaven. But he attaches us to himself by means of something that exerts force in both directions. In our salvation and union with Christ, there is something that we do that brings Christ down to us. This is our faith. It is by faith that we lay hold of Christ and bring him down into our souls. Now, obviously, this is by the power of the Spirit. I'm not denying God's sovereignty but faith is something that we have to exercise. And in exercising faith, we bring Christ down to us. But Christ also brings us up to him. And Christ does this by means of hope. If faith is that by which you bring Christ down to yourself, the hope of the gospel is that by which Christ lays hold of you and brings you up to glory. And it is this hope that is necessary for our salvation. Just like a car attached only by a chain will not make it to its destination in one piece, so also a Christian who does not understand the hope of the gospel may well make it to heaven, but it will be a bumpy ride. And so in this passage, we see that Joseph is an example of this hope. In fact, his example of hope is so clear and perfect for us, we can say 
that he is saved by hope alone. And as we look at this passage, we're going to see that even in the midst of earthly blessings, Joseph sets his mind on the hope of eternal blessings. In the midst of earthly blessings, Joseph sets his mind on the hope of eternal blessings. Verses 22 and 23 are earthly blessings, and verses 24 through 26 are eternal blessings. Verses 22 and 23 are earthly blessings, and verses 24 through 26 are eternal blessings. Now, before we get into the details of the passage, the context needs to be kept in mind. I hope it's rather evident to you. This is the very last episode in the book of Genesis. This is the last thing that Moses will say about the history of the patriarchs. And it is a fitting picture for the close of this chapter of God's dealing with man, because as we come to the close of this book, we are left with this image of a godly man who has walked by faith and yet dies. The important thing to notice about Joseph's death, though, is that he dies in hope. He dies in the hope of the gospel. But we'll begin by looking at these earthly blessings that Joseph is enjoying. Notice, Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household. Now remember who Joseph was. He was the second in command of Egypt. He is a fabulously wealthy man. He has more money and more food and more supplies than anybody would know what to do with. And he's living in the lap of luxury in Egypt. But not only does he have material wealth, he also has domestic wealth. Notice what the text says. He's there with his whole father's household. Uh, Joseph lived 110 years. I forgot to mention this. Joseph's age, this 110 years, is an indication of how blessed he was in an earthly sense. All throughout the scriptures, long life is connected with God's blessing upon a man. You remember the promise of the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother so that it may be well with you and that you may live long in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. So long life is always looked at in the scriptures as a blessing. It's a blessing in this life, and Joseph is obviously enjoying a very long life. Not only does he have wealth, not only does he have an abundance of years, he also has an abundance of children. Notice what Moses says. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. So what this means is that Joseph saw Ephraim, his son, Ephraim's son, so Joseph's grandson, and Ephraim's son's son, his great-grandson, all the way down through Ephraim's line. He also sees Manasseh's children. The children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. Just take a moment and look at the picture that Moses gives us of Joseph at the end of his days. He's an old man with a uh, completely funded retirement account, and he is enjoying his children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, and he's living the good life, as we might say. This is really the pinnacle of earthly blessings in this life. No worries about money and having your family surrounding you. God often will bless his servants with blessings like this. We saw that Abraham died as a very wealthy man. Jacob as well dies as a wealthy man. Joseph now also dies as a very wealthy man. He also enjoys his children surrounding him, and there are many testimonies of godly families that enjoy a multitude of children surrounding them. But along with these earthly blessings is an earthly temptation. You see, these earthly blessings that Joseph is enjoying are only temporary. These earthly blessings are not the heart of what the gospel promises to us. Look with me at a few passages. What, one of the mistakes that we make in this life is we think that because these are good things, 
And because Joseph enjoys these good things, if we don't have these good things, that must mean God is not with us. That must mean God is not blessing us if we don't have money, health, and children. But look with me at a few passages in uh, Psalm, the book of Psalms. Psalms 17, Psalm 17, verse 14. David is praying in Psalm 17, and he's asking the Lord to deliver him from wicked men. But notice how he describes these wicked men. uh, Verse 13, Arise, O Lord, confront him, cast him down, deliver my life from the wicked with your sword, with your hand from men, O Lord. Notice carefully, from men of the world who have their portion in this life and whose belly you fill with hidden treasure. They are satisfied with children and leave the rest of their possessions to their babes. Notice how David describes these wicked men. They have an abundance of children and an abundance of treasure. They leave this treasure to their children after them. Notice also Psalm 73. Psalm 73, verse 12. The psalmist is writing about the envy. Asaph is writing about the envy he had for the wicked. And notice what he envies about the wicked. Psalm 73, verse 12. Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Again, there's a description of the wicked as those who increase in riches. They have many earthly blessings. If you recall, at the beginning of the book of Genesis, Moses also wrote about the line of Cain. And when you read the line of Cain in Genesis chapter 4, the description of Cain's line is that they are uh, healthy, wealthy, and wise. They invent animal husbandry. They invent the skills of metallurgy. Cain builds a city. They have an abundance of wealth, and they have an abundance of children. But the thing that you and I need to be reminded of, and the thing that Joseph will remind us of, is that the wicked only have this. The wicked only have a portion in this life. Those who are not God's people only have the benefits of an easy life now. But they have no hope in the future. They have no hope beyond this life. And so as David says in Psalm 17, they have their portion in this life. Let me put it this way. I once heard a preacher say it like this. The wicked in this life, when they enjoy good and blessings in this life, that's as close as they'll ever get to heaven. Whatever good they might enjoy is as close as they'll ever be to heaven. Now for us as God's people... We need to be careful that we are not envious of the wicked, that we do not set our heart on riches which make themselves wings and fly away, that we do not, as the Lord warned us in the Sermon on the Mount, lay up for ourselves treasures on earth where rust and moth comes in to destroy them, that we do not become like the wealthy landowner who had an abundant crop and said, I will make myself bigger barns, and I will make myself a larger storehouse to store up all of my wealth. This is a very easy temptation to fall into. Because, as we all know, life is a lot easier when you have money. Life's a lot easier when you can just buy it, isn't it? Life is a lot easier when you have physical health. Life is a lot easier when you have a large family surrounding you. Life is easier for those who enjoy earthly blessings. And it's easy to get tied up in this. It's easy to set our mind on these things and to forget the Lord our God. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul instructed Timothy, and through Timothy he instructs us, to be aware of this temptation. 1 Timothy chapter 6. 
First Timothy chapter 6, Paul writes in verse 17, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty nor to trust in uncertain riches, but to trust in the living God. Here is the danger that we need to be aware of. And, and there is a conflict between these two things. The danger that we need to be aware of, especially in our affluent and wealthy society, the danger is that we trust in uncertain riches. The danger is that we start to think life will be easier when the checking account reaches 10000 Life will be easier when the mortgage is paid off. Life will be easier when I have my insurance payouts, when the retirement account kicks in, when I make this deal, when I sell this property. It's easy to think this way and to get wrapped up in uncertain riches. But what Paul reminds us of is that we do not trust in uncertain riches. We trust in the living God. Now there's some very practical guidance here, especially for some of the young folks in the crowd and for the older folks that are currently working a job. Why do you go to work every day? The wrong answer is to get a paycheck. Why do you go to work every day? You go to work every day to glorify God. You go to work every day to bring glory to him with the gifts and skills he has given you. The paycheck will take care of itself. The Lord will feed his people. The Lord will give you what you need to live and glorify him. The reason we go to work is to glorify him, waiting on him to reward us. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5, Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in sincerity of heart as to Christ. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. You notice how Paul takes this idea of not trusting in riches, but trusting in the living God, and then he applies it to those who are employees. And he says, employee, your job is to do your work and glorify God where you are. The reward and the paycheck will take care of itself. God is not ignorant of how you work and what you're doing, even though your boss might be ignorant. This is just one example of how we can be tempted to trust in uncertain riches, how we can be tempted to focus on earthly blessings and miss setting our hearts on eternal blessings. Well, that's where we turn to now in Genesis chapter 50. Joseph, even in the midst of these earthly blessings still fixes his heart on the hope of eternal blessing. First off, we notice Joseph has faith in the gospel. He trusts in the gospel. And notice what he says here in verse 24. There's three things in verse 24 that are essentially the three aspects of the gospel of Jesus Christ. One is the God, one is the benefit, and one is the people that benefit belongs to. Notice what Joseph says. Joseph said to his brothers, I am dying, but God will surely visit you. Notice first off that Joseph's hope, his his whole focus is on what God is going to do. And notice how Joseph describes it. He says, God will come. God is coming. God will return. The word visit is a very important word in the Old Testament. It's a word that means to pay attention to, means to be concerned about. It means to 
quite literally what we mean when we say that we're going to visit someone. We show up and we pay attention to them. We are there for them. This is one of the fundamental truths of Scripture. God is coming for a visit. God will return to His creation. When Adam and Eve sinned, God, as it were, withdrew Himself from the creation and is now patiently waiting for the time of His return. Now, for the Christian, this is the source of our greatest joy and it is the source of our greatest hope. Paul will say this in several different places, but we'll just look at one in Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul writes, uh, actually, yeah, Philippians 3, verse 17, I want you to notice here not only the hope that God is returning, but also how Paul contrasts this with earthly blessings. Pay attention. Philippians 3, 17. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk of whom I've told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see here how the Christian's hope is nothing less than the return of the Lord Jesus Christ who has loved us and cleansed us from our sins through His cross. And it is because of that cleansing, it is because the judgment has been executed upon Him that God's visitation is a source of joy for the Christian. We have been fully reconciled. He is our Savior. He is the one who loves us. And we also love Him. For the Christian, this is a source of great joy. For those who are not Christians, God's visitation is the source of the greatest dread. Because it is the same God. Holy Holy, holy, the Lord God Almighty. This God is coming. And as the Psalms say over and over again, Psalm 98, He is coming to judge the earth. Look at what Paul says at the end of our passage. Philippians 3.20. Pardon me, 21. Who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to His glorious body according to the working by which He is able to subdue all things to Himself. This God who is coming to visit His people is the God who is the Almighty and subdues all things to Himself. So if you are not in Christ, if you have not submitted to Him by faith, you will submit on that day. He will bring you to bow the knee then if you will not bow the knee now. But if you have bowed the knee, if you are united to Christ by faith, this is the greatest hope that we have. This is the source of our joy. This is what we look forward to. But not only do we look forward to the visitation of God, we look forward to the benefit. Return to Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50. Joseph says, I am dying. But God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land which he swore. So we have the visitation of God himself. God coming to his creation and then the benefit that comes out of that. There is a benefit that comes when God is at work. And when God is at work and he visits his people... He blesses them with Himself. You see, as I've mentioned many times in the book of Genesis, at this stage in God's covenant, the gospel is being presented under this administration. 
And the administration of the covenant at this time is the promise made to Abraham. I will be your God, you will be my people, I will bless you with a seed, and I will bring that seed into a land. Joseph repeats the same promise here in the same kind of language. But this promise that God's people would come into the land of promise was not merely that they should have a certain section of real estate. The the, the promise of God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was not merely that you're going to have a larger house. The promise made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was that they would enjoy the presence of God in glory forever. Turn with me to two passages that fill this out. Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit at the birth of his son, John the Baptist. Luke chapter 1, verse 67. I want you to notice two things about this passage. One, three things. One, Zechariah is a priest of the Levitical priesthood in the temple in Jerusalem. He knows his Bible. Zechariah understood the covenants of promise better than anyone. Maybe not better than anyone, but he at least understood what he was talking about. Secondly, He's filled with the Holy Spirit, and I want you to notice the language the Holy Spirit uses here. He uses the term of visiting, and he also uses the term of the promise to our fathers. The same promise that Joseph is recalling at the end of the book of Genesis. So look at what it says in verse 67. Now his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying... Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised To our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. What is the benefit of this oath, O Zacharias? To grant us that we, being delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Notice how Zacharias interprets the oath made to Abraham. That you should serve and worship the God in his presence forever. That you should be delivered from all of your enemies and enjoy the presence of God all of your days. So it wasn't just a promise of real estate. It wasn't just a promise of a bigger house. It was a promise that in that piece of real estate, dwelling in that house with you would be the Lord God Almighty himself. And you would have access to him to serve him and worship him all the days of your life. This is not only a promise that was realized in the temple of Solomon. This is also a promise that looks to eternity. Zechariah hints at it that we should serve before him all the days of our life. But this is a promise that implies resurrection. Look at what Paul says in Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26, Paul uses the same language. We'll just look at two verses. Acts chapter 26 and Acts chapter 28. Remember, at this point, Paul is being tried before the Roman governors. He's being brought to trial by the Jews. And Paul has this to say about himself. Acts 26, verses 6 and 7. And now I stand and am judged... For the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. He's referring back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The promise of God to our fathers, 
To this promise, our 12 tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. And for this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Turn to Acts 28, verse 20. He says almost the same exact thing. For this reason, therefore, I have called for you to see you and to speak with you, because for the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain. Now remember, the reason Paul is putting it this way is because in the midst of the mob in Jerusalem, he said, it's for the resurrection of the dead that I am being judged. There were Pharisees and Sadducees. Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees did. So when Paul says the hope of Israel, when Paul says the hope of the promise made to our fathers, he's speaking about the resurrection from the dead. This is the hope that God has promised to his people. That through his redemption of the seed of the woman, all of your sins would be forgiven and your dead body would be raised up in glory so that you can enjoy God's presence forever. And this is our hope. This is the eternal blessing that Joseph has his mind set upon and that Joseph dies looking for. There's one final thing in Genesis 50 that we need to pay careful attention to. There is the God, there is the benefit, and there's the people that this benefit belongs to. Notice what he says. Genesis 50, verse 24. God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. This is the first time in Scripture these three names are used this way. Throughout the rest of Scripture, these names appear like this, the promise made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In the book of Exodus, God will tell Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This now becomes a technical phrase to refer to the gospel promises of the Old Testament. It appears again and again throughout Scripture. We saw it in Luke chapter 1 where Zechariah uses the same at least Abraham's name, but at that point, it implies all the rest. When you use Abraham, you're talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is that their offspring would enjoy this blessing. And the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as Paul calls it in Acts 26 and in Acts 28, is the nation of Israel. All of this amounts to this simple application. The blessings of God are given to the people of God. The eternal blessings that God has promised belong to those who are his people. And those who are God's people are those that are united to Christ by faith. They are those whom, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, Glory in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and seek to serve and love Him. They are not those who trust in themselves. They are not those who are perfectly obedient. They are not those who hope for earthly blessings from the gospel. They are those who do not set their mind on earthly things, but they set their mind on the things of eternity, and specifically the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. This hope is what Joseph has set his mind upon, and this hope is yours through the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian this morning, this hope is what will anchor your soul. This hope is the ground of everything that we think and do. This hope is the ground of how we endure through this life. Turn with me to several passages in the New Testament because I want to strengthen your hope. I I want you to see that this hope is as essential as your faith. As Protestants, we tend to focus a lot on salvation by faith alone. That's very important. That is the means by which we lay hold of Christ and grab him. It's not by obedience. It's not by knowledge. It's not by emotion. It's by faith that we lay hold of Christ. But you need to understand that it is by hope that Christ lays hold of you and brings you all the way to glory. So turn with me to a few passages. First, Ephesians chapter 2. 
Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, where Paul summarizes a lot of what the Old Testament is teaching about hope. Ephesians 2, verse 11, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ. Notice what Paul is saying. Because you were not born into the nation of Israel, you were without Christ. You were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Be reminded, as the Apostle tells you, remember that outside of Christ there is no hope in the world. The world is hopeless without Christ. And such were some of you at one time. Such were some of you at one time. Hopeless, lost, without God, outside the covenants of promise. Paul says, remember this. For those who may currently still be outside of Christ, you are hopeless. There is no hope for you in yourself. There is no hope for you. There is no hope in man. There is no hope in obedience. There is no hope in knowledge. There is no hope in man. The only hope that man can have is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, believe in the Lord Jesus Repent and trust in Him, and as you trust in Him, you will have hope. Our world needs hope right now, doesn't it? If you look at all of the earthly blessings that we have enjoyed in this society, they're all vanishing. We, we may be on the brink of another major military conflict on the European continent. Gas prices are skyrocketing. The civil government is out to lunch. Who knows what they're doing? They certainly don't know what they're doing. And if you look around at all of these earthly blessings, it would be easy to collapse into a pit of depression. It would be easy to take your own life. Many are doing that. Many are doing that in the world around you who have no hope. But you, Christian, have hope in Christ through the covenants of promise. Notice also, Hebrews chapter 6, how this hope works in our lives. What this hope does for us. Hebrews 6, verses 18 and 19. The author is describing how much God wants you to be confident in Him. Verse 17, thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel. That means the unchangeableness of his counsel. That means God's purposes are as rigid and unchangeable as the tow hitch by which you tow your trailer. The immutability of his counsel, he confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us even Jesus having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. You know, in the Old Testament, when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, they tied a rope around his foot so that in case he died in the presence of God, they could pull him out and not have to go in there. What the book of Hebrews is telling us is that in the finished work of Christ as our high priest, there's a rope around your foot. And when Christ goes into the Holy of Holies, he will bring you in there with him in his due season. 
That is your hope, brothers and sisters, and this is the anchor of our soul. What are you going through right now? What are your trials? What are your tribulations? What are your griefs? What are your sorrows? All of those are brought before Christ and we're reminded that His promise is sure and steadfast. Loved ones are not sure and steadfast. Money is not sure and steadfast. Health is not sure and steadfast. All of these things are earthly, temporal, and vanishing. But Christ and His promise will never perish. So this becomes the anchor for us to move through life in the midst of trial and tribulation, in the midst of our sufferings, in the midst of our losses. This is what anchors our soul. But not only does it anchor our soul, it's also the motivation for holiness. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John 3, 3. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 3. Uh, pardon me. Chapter 2, verse 28. Just above that, this whole, this whole context here, John is writing about our hope and how to make practical use of it. And now, little children, abide in Him. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Abide in His Word. That when He appears... We may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God, that we should be called the precious little ones of the Almighty, What manner of love is this that we creatures of a day made from the dust, the Almighty God should say, you are mine. What manner of love is this? Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are the children of God. If you believe in Christ, you're God's child. doesn't matter what your earthly blessings are. They could be many. They could be few. You are one of God's children if you believe in the Lord Jesus. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Have you ever noticed your children like to imitate you? You do certain things and your daughter does it the same way. Or when I was a boy, I liked to put my dad's boots on. They were way too big for me. But I loved my dad and I wanted to be like my dad. John is saying here that you who love Christ, as you grow in your love for Christ, you want to be like him. You want to reflect him. You want to put his boots on and walk in his steps. That's what John is telling us, that that work is going to be complete when he returns. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. You know, you're probably like me, a sinner, and you've probably had to deal with trials in your life. And if you're anything like me, you you probably have made the same mistake that I've made. When, when trials get to be too much, when, when you become beaten down and frustrated by the state of your life, we begin to lose sight of this hope, that the ultimate reality is that Christ is coming. And in losing sight of this hope, what ends up happening? We fall back into our old ways. We fall back into our sinful habits. The, the besetting sins that we wish we were done with tend to come back up. I don't know what they are for you, but we all have them. We all have certain sin patterns that we're easily uh, distracted into. We easily fall back into those. Could be substance abuse, could be uncontrolled anger, it could be seeking distraction or pleasure or something like that, a foul tongue. It could be any of these sin patterns that we have. 
what John is reminding us of is that the way to grow against your sins, the way to grow in holiness and purity is to keep this hope in front of your eyes, to keep this reality in front of you. No matter what happens in this life, God will visit me and take me out of this land and bring me to the land he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He will bring me to glory. That's the only thing that matters. That's the only thing that matters in my life, is that he is coming. This is now the ground for why we grow in holiness. We're not earning salvation. We're not earning merits. We're not trying to one-up our brothers. We're trying to, when Christ returns, we need not be ashamed, and we will be like him when he is revealed. Well, now we understand why Paul says in Romans chapter 8, we were saved in hope. But hope that is not seen, we eagerly wait for it. This hope that we're waiting for, we haven't seen it yet. It's not here yet. Think about it like this. In this life, we enjoy glimpses of the glory of Christ. This life is like a cloudy morning after a rainstorm. And as the sun rises up, you know that the glory is there behind the clouds, but it can't quite get through. It's a little bit less gray when the sun is up, but it's still gray. Maybe one ray of light will come through at certain moments in our life. That's what it's like when we behold the glory of Christ right now. What the Bible is telling us is that when Christ returns, it will be the full noonday brightness of the glory of God shining down upon us. We have not seen this yet. None of us have experienced this glory. And yet this hope is what keeps us going. This hope is what saves us. One practical application that I'll conclude with. And this is perhaps the most important application. Of all of the other things that I've said, what I'm about to tell you is the most important aspect of Christian hope. The question is, how do I get this hope? How is this hope fed and maintained? Where does this hope come from? And I will tell you that God has made it as easy as possible for you to receive this hope and to be fed and strengthened in this hope. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 verse 24, Paul speaks about the hope of glory. And in verse 24, he talks about his ministry as a, an apostle, but, but more importantly as a preacher. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see that Paul, the mystery of God, the whole point of the word of God, is that Christ would be in you and Him being in you is the hope of glory. Well, how does Christ get in you? Look at the very next verse. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, striving according to His working, which works in me mightily. Let me make this very plain. God puts Christ in you through preaching. God puts Christ in you through preaching. And Christ in you is the hope of glory. 
Christ in you is the anchor of the soul. Christ in you is the anchor of your soul in this life through all of the tribulations. Christ in you is the hope of glory. It is through preaching that Christ gets put into your souls. Therefore, be under preaching. Be under the means that God uses. Be present at the worship services of the church. Be in and under the preaching because the preaching is what God will use to save you. Not according to the power of the preacher. Not according to the knowledge of the preacher. Notice what Paul says. Paul the apostle says that I labor striving according to his working. Through preaching, God is at work in your soul and the soul of the preacher. And it is through this work that Christ is formed in you. So if you want to have hope, if you want to be saved, if you want to have a firm anchor for your soul, you must be under the preaching. You must be in the church. You must be attending the services on the Lord's Day. Because what God does for you Lord's Day after Lord's Day after Lord's Day is he sets this hope before your eyes once again. One week at a time, one Sabbath at a time, step by step until finally you and I can die like Joseph died. God will surely visit you. He will bring you up from this land and bring you to the land that he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore, bury me. And when I'm buried, take me up to the land of Canaan when you leave this place. Because God will fulfill his word. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the examples of Joseph and all the patriarchs. We thank you for the story of Genesis, which tells us the beginnings of your ways from creation to the first promises of the covenant of grace. And we thank you also, O Lord, that you have fulfilled your promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You have sent the seed of the woman who has overcome all of our enemies, that we might be righteous and holy before you and serve you all the days of our life. We pray now, O Lord, that you would strengthen our faith and our hope in the the blessings that are yet to be fulfilled, that Christ would return and receive us to himself. And we pray, O Lord, that you would do all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen.